Hello and welcome. You're listening to Requires Improvement, a podcast by young teachers aiming to critically discuss all aspects of the current UK education system from an unashamedly left-wing perspective. What's going well and what really requires improvement? My name's Lee. I'm a secondary school teacher and a union rep, and I'm joined this week by my co-host Nick and Anu. Say hi, guys. Hello. It's been a little while since our last episode. What have you been up to in this closing stage of the academic year? Um, I have been uh, continuing to work from home, which involves uh, me staring at a computer screen for several hours a day, um, trying to sort out my scheme of learning for when I return to the prison so we're we're aiming to go back at some point we're not entirely sure when but um it will definitely involve blended learning so um approximately 50 percent percent sort of face-to-face teaching and 50 percent where the um the guys have to do work in their cells on their own so yeah that's what I've been doing I can see that going about as well as asking school children to not show up to school for three months and do all the work by themselves in their bedroom. Just call, call me an call me an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> I think there'll be an aspect to that, but um, surprisingly, they found that actually having a bit of autonomy and the um, the prisoners being able to like take work that's handed to them and um, work on it in their own time and not necessarily in a classroom environment has actually meant that a lot more of um, taken up the, the kind of the learning they've been given. So, uh, yeah, possibly we should get rid of classrooms, well, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. No, well, that's the thing they've noticed recently is the kids that have been in school, so that's not necessarily key worker kids, but vulnerable kids. They've... Um, it's possibly because their their home life is a bit like shambolic and chaotic and difficult. But then apparently some of them have been absolutely thriving in school because the stuff they've been doing is much more, you know, it's much less rigorous academic wise. There's much more fun. They, um, they don't have the uniforms. The teachers aren't as like disciplinarian. There's not all these targets and it's much more like relational approach to it. And funnily enough, <laughs> those kids have thrived. So yeah. it does, it kind of makes sense that the, because actually some of those prisoners, like just the academic environment is just a horrible place to be that just reminds them of nightmares anyway. Yeah. In which case I fully renounce my cynical quip. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nick, how about you? Yeah, uh, we've had to start doing some um, online lessons, which um, I think as a union we were right to hold off on those for as long as possible because there's a lot you can get wrong with them and we start to do it and it's a bit like performative but to be honest our management are kind of expecting the chaos to continue into the autumn term um so they're just saying look we just all need to get good at it just in case we shut for another couple of months or like on and off so been having a go at that and um just from the other end of the scale uh, had a kid today i think you it's kind of nice like talking to them and trying to get something out of them but they've some of them are a bit like stinted you know they don't it's really hard to get anything out of them because they they can see themselves on the screen. They can see that everyone can see them, so they, they can't really fidget. And they're sort of listening. It's a bit weird for me teaching it as well. But um, you know, you're asking them how their lockdown has gone. You know, if you, if you developed any, you're kind of giving them a small talk that I'll ask my friends when I see them for the first time in the pub. Any new uh, hobbies or? <laughs> 
any new things and uh, I started talking about sourdough and this one kid went oh no not sourdough my my mum bakes it all the time my mum bakes it all the time why can't you just bake normal bread mum <laughs> which is different obviously that that shows how my school is not is not the the most deprived area but at least this kid is a proper climate activist absolute hero um, who actually has, has had zoom meetings with uh, engineers with an engineering company to get solar panels put in school and management blocked it and she can't work out why and I'm now ready to teach her about what power is and how you can get it and actually you know but it's a radicalizing moment it's like that she she's completely right she's doing something popular that won't cost the school any money really and is not that hard to do and they're still saying no because it's not their priority and they don't really care so that that at the moment, either she's going to give up completely, or she's going to think, right, we're going to have to scale this up and do something more, more aggressive with it, which I'm happy to facilitate. Um, she's not going to give up. <laughs> so yeah, it's going to be interesting. I I, I salute her uh, endeavours. It sounds like well, you've you 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 two have given me some very positive anecdotes. The start of this episode. Um, what have you done? Um, <laughs> um, well, I, I've made no secret of the fact that for about two months straight, I lay on the couch and play computer games in a, <laughs> in a, a quite worryingly compulsive manner. I wasn't even sure I was having fun. But I think it was a mixture of, you know, um, normal exhaustion of being a teacher, having lived at 110 miles an hour and then basically hit a brick wall. I sort of had a lot of uh, insomnia and I was sort of genuinely worried about the national picture. Was this the beginning stages of the collapse? And it, well, who knows? It still might be, but... It is. <laughs> it definitely is. I have since, certainly in, in the last month, the month of June, I have, you know, refound my, my, my raison d'etre. I, you know... Doing the union stuff, doing the podcast stuff, it's it's kept me in touch with the world, and you know I can see light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, good. If that's only it's a train. This, yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's the six weeks of the summer holidays, so yeah. you know I, I at the very least we'll have a chance to take stock, recharge, assess priorities for the coming well whatever lurks ahead in terms of September and, and a wider reopening. We will, uh, in our next episode, be looking at a sort of, well, we'll do a little retrospective on what the, what, you know, the COVID pandemic has meant for education since March. Uh, we'll look at what's happened and we'll make some, you know, predictions and have a little, have a little look forward as to what's coming down the pipe, certainly from a union perspective. So, this brings me neatly to the topic of our episode this week. Um, so, you know, listeners will recall that in our last episode, we were joined by Dr. Roger Ball from Bristol Radical History Group, where we took a little walk back through history to, you know, explain who the hell was Edward Colston? How, you know, did he come to be this, you know, public figure, very well known around Bristol, not at least in terms of place names. Uh, but we also looked into the hidden history of the Society of the Merchant Venturers. Now, our interest in this wasn't just topical. We are, you know, as an education podcast, we are very interested in structural questions of education governance today. And it just so happens that the Society of the Merchant Venturers still have a huge influence on both the private and public spheres of education in Bristol today. And I, you know, we've, we, we have 
been very fortunate to be uh, have another guest interview. In this case, we've got uh, Christine Townsend, um, formerly a teacher. Uh, now she is basically a, a campaigner for you know education rights, and uh, you know we will be hearing the interview that we've done with her. Just as a little bit of foregrounding, we thought we'd um, explain our sort of rationale for why we do this, and I'm gonna you know invite some comments from my co-hosts. You know why. Is it important for educators today to look at the structures in which schools are governed and managed? Well, I mean, um, schools, I'm not saying there's a good old days, but schools used to be public institutions based in the community, which were governed by uh, like people, like figures from the community. And their accountability of how good or bad they were was linked to local councillors and a local authority. And that stuff was ripped away under academisation. So now they're not accountable to anyone um, apart from the people they appoint to be accountable to. And like the Tories are flashing the cash at the moment. Like they don't need to do austerity in the same way. Like, if the left is just going to be about spending more money, they're going to outflank us on that. Like, people look at Finland or Sweden and they go, oh, those are socialist countries. Like, are they? They're not really, though. They, they, they spend more money. They have a better welfare state. But what socialism really is and like what, what is really going to make a difference to working people's lives is democratic control of the, of the, of the economy, democratic control of the institutions that we work in and we're educated in the things that the things that we live our lives in these things being in working people's hands and um schools have got to be an important part of that and the academy there's so many different things wrong with academies but one clear way that i'm thinking about it is is this is this idea of democracy you know and, and surely that's an easy sell to people do you want some unaccountable goon in a suit who's linked to all these other schools that you don't care about to run your school? Or do you want the people here to run the school? Do you want to have a stake in that or no stake whatsoever whilst all these people pay each other as much as they like? You know, that, and that's the kind of thing I think has got cut through. And those are the arguments we need to be making on the left about education, really. Uh, I would agree. And, you know, I, I, I think... The public impression of schools, you know, um, in this age of neoliberalism, people look to state institutions for their information about schools. So most parents, when they want to assess how good a school is, they go to Ofsted. And that's only going to give you such a narrow view of what that school is doing. And it certainly won't tell you about the nature of its governance or the ideology of its trustees. Um, and in fact, you know, in an age of league tables, in an age of inter-school competition, schools have a vested interest in you not finding out what they're really like. What you get as a member of the public is the PR spin. You get a glossy prospectus. You get, uh, you know, a, a spotless image. All scandal or all, all mispractice is suppressed, like often with actual legal threats. Mm, I'm looking forward to what comes in the inbox after this episode. But 
That was a joke because everything we don't have an inbox. Everything we've discussed is a matter of public record, and uh, if anything our guest or we have ever said is factually incorrect, I welcome a correction. But I, I do not think one will be forthcoming. Um, so. It is actually up to educators, it is up to campaigners, it is up to anyone who's invested in this. And I believe everyone should be invested in this, because unless you can afford the 12 to 40 grand it costs per year to send your kid to a private school, this is what you've got. This is what you're getting. What we've been learning in this interview is that um, there are state schools in Bristol being run in a way that favours rich people and it's you know it's not about whether you can afford the fees it's whether you can afford uh the transport it's whether you can afford the specialist skills like being in a choir being a musician being particularly proficient in certain sports these are ways in which you know the actual state education of bristol is is gentrified it is it is rarefied it is available to a select few and therefore not the entire of the communities in which these schools are based. Anu, did you have any thoughts you wanted to share? Yeah, I just, uh, I think it, the reason that we thought it was important to do this um, interview is is for the reasons that we've already touched upon, but I've, I'm particularly interested in um, this idea that you just sort of mentioned of, of, of how um, schools are seen by the general public. So, like, I think uh, CEOs of academies are increasingly looked to for um, their opinions about education generally as well. So we've seen this recently with like the um, opening of schools on June the 1st, where, you know, the, the loudest voices were, for example, the head of the Oasis Trust saying that he was going to they were going to open all 35 of their schools because of um, well, because of of disadvantaged kids. Um, and I, I read this, um, evening standard article where he was quoted as saying, you know, we serve children that live in council estates and don't have fresh air to breathe in them and don't, um, aren't able to go out and exercise and don't have nutritious meals. So school is there to provide that. I mean, this is the kind, these are the kind of, comments um that you get from someone who clearly is is out of touch with the kids that go to a school i mean these are the kind of nonsensical idea that you you, you know you, all working class and disadvantaged children living count on council estates as well it's just complete like um g generalized nonsense so and i think christine touches on it as well about how sort of detached these schools are from the 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 students that they serve um, and also actually how they've engineered the kinds of students that they want to serve as well. So they're, you know, they purport to be, academies often purport to be like um, stalwarts of the community or, or, you know, kind of hubs of the community. And, and you find that in the case of, um, you know, the academy trust that, that Christine talks about, actually that is not the case. Um, and that, yeah, there's this kind of um, selection happening um, by by other kind of means, and I think it's really important that we that we understand that academisation um, enables this selection of kids. You know, either either through intake and through, or through who they keep in their schools. So, you know, uh, the Oasis Trust is also going to uh, has is opening a secure school. You know, so it's almost like they've got this kind of 
line of students from uh, the schools that they that they already uh... is the point that you're making anew is that like if these if this process of academization is not checked and rolled back rolled back we are looking at a sort of monopoly of state education by people who will funnel students according to their ability yeah we're we're, we're almost back to a yeah we're back to a tripartite system uh, and the public will quite literally it will be beyond aside from your general election every four or five years there seems to be no redress beyond this i i don't know if you'd agree yeah yeah it just seems that um we're becoming more and more uh, detached from these democratic processes whereby all students, all children are served uh, by this education system. And that's happening through this increased sort of marketization and managerialism that is sort of cropping up in our education system. Um, yeah, so I think it's really important that we that we asked Christine to do this um, because she's delved so much into the sort of like unholy affairs of these um, trusts for, for so many years. Um, and she sort of talks about the, the kind of genesis as well of this, um, this very big trust that we, we hear her talk about. I mean, the other thing um, it's worth talking about is like the culture within these mats and like the culture that they create um, is so managerial and businesslike, and they're proud of that businesslike edge. And what's really worrying for me is that um, <clears throat> these big mats uh, do like are taking on more and more teacher training. Um, so the Conservatives have tried to keep uh, teacher training out of universities. Like they're kind of attacking that and undermining it, um, trying to get it put in based in schools but if you get if you do a pgc in university you're in school most of the time anyway but they when you're completely based in a school um it means that school's weird managerial vision can be put onto the the staff so like i mean the easiest kind of way of of changing is like you go to university and you're taught by people in embedded in a university how to educate and they're talking about big ideas and they're inspiring you and you have lots of time for critical reflection and you're in this in the university in the kind of the academy in the important um high level thinking thing in society when you do it in a school why wouldn't they just teach you to be as effective as possible at teaching gcses because the idea is that you go and you do your training at this school and then you get a job in one of their other schools where they've got a place for you but what they teach you is just this, like, how to be very effective at fact retention, which is what a GCSE is. Like, you're not... When I have te- trainee teachers in, um, I try and make them do weird lessons, like interesting things that are going to excite the kids and, and make them want to learn and make links between different things and stuff. And, like, I'm not saying every lesson is sit on the floor and turn the lights out and, you know, pass around Bombay Mix until you understand what sharing is. But, like... <laughs> Sometimes you need a bit of that, but like when 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 with these mats, they're never going to allow that kind of stuff. They, they'll have like a house style of teaching, which has been drilled in through like excessive lesson observation, uh, bullying of uh, any outlying staff until they leave, and um, uh, aggressive performance management as well. And so, like that, that's a worrying thing to me. Like people coming into the profession, just being in these kind of silos of uh, 
utter wankery, uh, to be honest. But um, no, I mean, I, I I think you make an excellent point there, Nick. I mean, they're not training you to be a teacher that could go into any school. They're going to train you how to be an Oasis teacher. Uh, a Cabot teacher, a teacher, a, ha- a Harris Academy's teacher. And, you know, you will struggle in an environment that is not that. If you're not given that freedom to develop your own style, your own independent approach to the craft, then, yeah, the, 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 we are staring down the barrel of a, of a systemic threat to state education because the actual capacity of people to innovate is is in question, especially when we know from the union side the, the 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 culture inside these schools is not good for the teachers anyway. It's not good for their health. It's not good for their well-being. Um, you know, it's very much the worst academies very much, very consciously operate on a burnout cycle. They will get what they can from you until you can no longer keep up and then you're out the door. And that's, that's why I have an innate distrust of a lot of the business speak and a lot of the, you know, apprentice style, you know, it's in reference to the TV show, this kind of hard hitting, no nonsense. You either deliver, you're either on the bus or off the bus. Um, it's not good for the teachers and it's a shocking example to set to the students as well as to oh, I may, you could argue it's probably a realistic example as to you know the meat <laughs> grinder into which students are being herded in modern day capitalism but there I go again um, <laughs> in short I think to link back to what Nick was talking about and it's in, in his students earnest attempts to try and get solar panels installed in their school for the benefit of the environment in the way that that student has found out the limits of what is possible within the current system. I think educators need to grapple with these facts. You need to, you know, to borrow an old cliche, you need to know your enemy. You need to know what you're up against and you need, and, and again, a bit like the history of Colston, once you know it, you find out what a laughable, uh, construct the 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 cult of Colston was as soon as you interrogate the facts it falls apart like a house of cards i think the same is true of the academy system if you if you can look beyond the pr spin the glossy brochures the massage statistics when you find out what is really going on you have a much less gratifying opinion of what these institutions do and what they're even capable of by design so for me that's why i thought it was very appropriate we have uh christine townsend on our show to just lay down some facts drop some truth bombs about what about what the system well what the system's like currently because if we can appraise it for what it is then we might figure out a way of starting to take it apart wishful thinking eh absolutely cool Without do we have ado, i am now gonna play our interview with christine townsend enjoy so it gives me great pleasure to welcome our interview guest for this week christine townsend she is a local educator and campaigner from the countering colston group please tell us a bit about yourself christine your career thus far and the countering colston campaign so i trained um as a secondary school teacher in 96 in london Mm-hmm. So those were the days before academies and um, before things like Teach First and other such stuff. I had to do a PGCE. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I worked in London, um, in Islington and Lewisham, and then moved up to uh, work in a secure unit near Coventry, 
And then I returned back home to live and work in 2003. And I've been in and around, in Bristol working in, in and around schools um, ever since. Um, and countering Colston was something that came about, it's probably about five years ago now, four or five years ago. Um, I had been looking into the practices of certain schools and the really big kicking thing for me was uh, an investigative journalist called Tony Gosling. He got into um, one of these annual ceremonies in Bristol Cathedral and videoed the Bishop of Bristol telling hundreds of school kids, which included at that time, of course, state children, um, that um, there was speculation around how Edward Colston made his money. And he compared Edward Colston in the same sentence as Jesus. I see. And there was a big kickoff in the media about it because, of course, this was then released um, and the bishop had to come out and go, I'm against slavery. I'm not a supporter of slavery. And my words were misinterpreted and things like that. Um, and I just went, I just kind of lost it at that point and just said, these people, not only are these people doing these other things that we'll get into a bit more in a bit more depth later on in the interview, but they're also taking children to religious buildings and telling them falsalities um, being delivered by the Bishop of Bristol. So I put a formal complaint into the, well, I didn't realise at the time, but if you complain about a bishop, it goes to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, <laughs> yeah, it goes right up the chain. It go, <laughs> yes, because their boss, their, the bishop's boss is the Archbishop of Canterbury. And of course, I didn't realise at the time, yeah, it, didn't, well, it didn't occur to me that he's also a member of the House of Lords. Well, for friend, um, friends and friends in high places. Yeah, so, yeah. so he was. So then they had an classical lawyer look at what was going on. I mean, they, they didn't find anything, but that was kind of the just the bit where I was just like, "What are these people doing?" Sure. Um, and then I started to look into what these ceremonies were about, and there were a few other people then that kind of I, I contacted the radical history group and was like why are these people lying about the history of this man to school children? Um, and that's kind of where it all started, really. Sure. I mean, so, to, you know, to link it with what we were talking about with Dr. Roger Ball in our last episode, um, your activities through the Countering Colston campaign led you to learn about the Society of the Merchant Venturers. No, I, I knew you- about the Society before, way before that. I right. was looking at what they were doing in state schools way before that and then when this thing happened with this investigative journalist because I'm not the one the only person interested in what the Society of Merchant Ventures are doing and how they're impacting on public services in the city sure so once that came out it kind of widened what was going on really and and more people were kind of from different angles then became interested in just what this society were doing with school children in ancient religious buildings I I completely agree I mean just trying to put the chronology in place um, was your first encounter with the Society of the Merchant Venturers when you worked in the City Academy uh, a state school that they ended up running yeah so 2003 was when the City Academy opened it was officially their first year I was ahead of year seven for that first year intake for the academy. So it was quite a big deal. Sure. Um, And a bloke called John Laycock was the chair and the sponsor. 
I see. So the society itself at that point wasn't officially involved, but John Laycock is a merchant venturer. He also at that time owned Bristol City. As in, as in the football club. As in the football <laughs> club, yes. So, which was why Bristol... And what they were interested at that time was... Because if people can remember back in 2003, it was there was the big push on um, football teams having academies to bring on new players and kind of offer wider sort of opportunities and mentor and educate young uh, young people within sport so that was Bristol City's academy um, was at the City Academy so they were the, so the sports facilities were really really good once they were all up and running they still are I mean it's great for sport facilities down there yeah uh, I mean we are talking about a real a really important school for the city of Bristol it's got a quite a um shall we say like well working class intake primarily it's it's i guess it is it's you would classify it perhaps as an inner city school yeah it's certainly, so, yes it's certain, it is yeah uh, and obviously it had you know multi you know well multi-million pound investment in its facilities but it was envisioned as one of the new labor style academies the first kind of academies we saw in this country is that correct yes it was it was first wave so when the city academy opened that september there were nine academies in the country that's how how early Bristol was and how early the Society of Merchant Venturers were in getting involved in the Academy's programme right sure. there, right at the beginning. Um, they were they were in there with that. Yeah, so um, can you just talk us through how then uh, this school ended up becoming an, an almost prototype multi-academy trust? They didn't use that language back in the New Labour era, but it's my understanding that it became part of something called the Southwest Partnership? Yeah, it was called the Southwest Academies Division. So uh, there's very little information that you can find about this organisation now. It wasn't in existence for very long. Um but in 2008, so five years after the City Academy had been opened, mm-hmm. this Southwest Academies division was set up and the Society of Merchant Venturers then were officially involved with it. And there sure. were four secondaries that were involved with that. So two of those had been independent schools up until 2008. So that was when the Colston Girls School came in and became mm-hmm. a state-funded academy and uh, Bristol Cathedral Choir School where it came from the independent sector and became an academy. And that was when the merchants um, put their own name and renamed the Withywood Community School down in South Bristol and renamed it Merchants Academy. Um, the two private schools in 2008 were the first in the country to come out of the independent sector and become academies so that's really key for me because the last time i looked but there was you know it was a few years ago but the last time i looked there was 12 um in the whole country that were independent and had become academies and two of those are in bristol and it was the first time that 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 process kind of went through if you like sure. under the labor government in 2008 um, and this Southwest, I mean, I don't know what the governance structures were at that time, but I am, but I can remember um, that staff would be kind of, they do sort of CPD together. 
Yeah. And there would be subject um, kind of leads that would link up across the schools. It was very much what can we learn from these two private schools? There was nothing going back the other way. It was well, how, how do we emanate what these two private schools were doing, even though, you know, the reason that they were needing to become academies was because their intakes, they were hemorrhaging their intakes. Yeah, they, um, they were fa- failing businesses, essentially. Yeah, they were failing businesses and um, they knew that they were they would go out of business if they didn't become state funded. So that was the push uh, for both of those schools to become because Redland Green by then had opened, you see. You know, Redland yeah, Green in Redland. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the schools with the most extraordinary narrow, uh, what do they call them, catchment areas. You know, it, it was a school built to serve a very uh, upper middle class, uh, leafy co- community in Bristol, a very well off area. And so those two schools knew that they needed to do something or they would be forced to close because they just weren't getting um, that the students just weren't going to be coming into their schools because there was a state school up the road they could go to instead yeah um, so we've got our timeline here then and we sort of put our terms of reference in place I want to go back to when you were working at this city academy run by John Laycock a, a merchant venturer I mean what, what was it like to work there what, what, what did you feel that they brought to that school or what was their impact on this brand new new labour style city academy um, I mean, it was the early days of both the Academy's programme, certainly if the Academy's programme was going to take off and develop, it needed to be um, seen to be positive for the community and for the students. It had a huge impact because it was this brand new purpose-built school. So St George as it was, was a mixture of Victorian buildings. I've got a huge issue with the fact that they knocked all the Victorian buildings down, but that's a, that's about working class heritage being, sure. you know, flattened. But anyway, so there were the, uh, so it was a mixture of Victorian buildings and kind of the 60s sort of add-ons. You know, when they build a drama studio and it's so it was one of those you know it would have been leaking it would have been falling down um and it wouldn't have been fit for purpose in terms of any of the it equipment or um you know the toilets would be were getting blocked all the time so things were very old and very run down so for the first couple of years it was the school to go to because until 2008 there weren't any any other investments around the academy's program in the city you see so uh, but as of for for once 2008 kind of came about then we see the likes of brunel having some investment bristol brunel down the road bristol met started to get some so they used so it was only after a few years that you started to see some other schools also get some some investment through the academy's program but certainly for the first few years it was considered to be you know, quite a, a good school in the area and one that was sought after. Plus, they had this um, association with Bristol City, which mm. was the, which was quite a big thing because it was the yeah. first time that a big known sports um, provider and kind of, uh, you know, they were still wanting to go. F- uh, England was still in the process of trying to get the World Cup at that stage. Mm. 
and Laycock was still trying to push for a new stadium out in Ashton Gate. So all of this stuff was very exciting in those kind of first early years. Um, But it soon became not as impressive because other schools came up to spec, if you like, in and around the area and in different parts of the city. How would you say their approach was to sort of treating their staff? I mean, what was it like to actually be a teacher at this school, especially once the shine shine came off? Yeah, I mean, 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 you know, I left in 2010 um, and I worked under a head teacher called Ray Priest. Now, Ray was very... He'd been the head before. He, he, as an individual, he was quite. He, he wanted to keep the union representation. He wanted to be very um, consultative. Hmm. However, once it, the head teacher was replaced in 2010, what I then heard from people that I knew that were working there was how uh, kind of the, the treatment of the staff began to deteriorate. So I think that with this school and with the others, actually, that the Society of Merchant Venturers run is very much dependent on who the head teacher is at the time as to what happens within those schools. And it isn't about who's uh, on the governing, who's governing the, the schools and the direction doesn't necessarily come from them. It comes from whoever the head happens to be at that time. And if we look at the history of the the schools that are run by the merchant venturers, we very much see that in results, in kind of how long staff stay, you know, senior management and things like that. So it's, it's yeah, whether their values and kind of, um, you, you know, what they consider to be important actually is is enabled to be put through into the schools. I, I, I question whether that's the case. Sure. Um, it's my understanding that there was some actual legal controversy around their employment practices, especially in regards to racial discrimination. Yeah, so that was in 2014. So this would have been, this was still at the time when Laycock was the chair um, and there was a different head teacher, um, Jill, somebody her, her name was. Uh, they were done, they were taken to court and they were done and found to be guilty of institutional racism. So this is an Afro-Caribbean um, Bristolian uh, teacher. He'd been there many years um, and he won. So good for him. And then within months of that happening, um, Offset also came in and declared them to be inadequate. And it was at that point that John Laycock and the Society of Merchant Venturers began their kind of exit, if we like, from that school. Washing their hands of this. Yeah, basically. well, it was yeah. yeah, it was no longer something that was positive. They didn't want, presumably, they didn't want to be associated with certainly institutional racism or inadequate education provision. So, um, what happened then in, in in the aftermath? Just talk us through where, where did City Academy end up? Well, City at the t- so in twenty by the time twenty fourteen came around, this Southwest Academies division had been split up. So the four secondaries were in separate academy trusts by this time, by 2014, with different names, and they had primaries attached to them. So the City Academy, when this happened in 2014, was in something called the One World Trust, and Bannerman Road was a primary in with it. So 
they had to so there's so john laycock had to deal with this trust so what they actually then did was um set up the venturers trust bannerman road goes into the venturers trust ofsted good and the city academy i hear had quite a big um they were in quite a lot of debt um and they were officially taken over by cabot learning federation um two years later in 2016 but Cabot had their head teacher in there before it officially became part of the Cabot Learning Federation. So this academy trust that City was in at that time was disbanded. So they took the primary, but they wanted to offload the secondary because it had, you know, brought them some uh, bad publicity and they'd been caught out basically breaking the law and not understanding what equality... They don't understand what equality is. They don't understand what equity is. It's just not part of their cultural approaches it's not part of you know they they'd only ever had experience of private schools and, and i'm afraid the 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 sort of legal framework that academies are allowed to operate in it essentially means moving moving schools around on on a chessboard you know taking the bits you want building an empire discarding undesirable pieces you know it's perfectly now legal for these trusts these academies the, you know these managers to 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 you know, play play roulette with public services. That's that's certainly our you know how we how we see these things. So, thinking then beyond City Academy, uh, how have you you know kept tabs on what the merchant venturers are up to in in the city of Bristol? What sort of things have you been aware of that they're up to? Well, I mean, it's, so Merchants Academy is the other one that um, is the, the other kind of um, working class secondary that. Um, these this organization runs um they've they named it after themselves which makes it quite difficult for them to ditch it i would suggest um because their vanity got the better of them at the time um so they that became that became an academy in 2008 and for a couple their first inspection was good mm-hmm. um and but then in 2015 they got inadequate and they've just come out of special measures and they're now in RI. But that school has had numerous head teachers since Anne Burroughs left, one of which only stayed for a year. Um, I've had um, experience of supporting a parent through, through completely through their complaints procedure, um, which was quite an eye-opening experience. Um, and what that demonstrated to me was the importance of making sure you keep records of everything because certainly their governing body did not. Um, and it was quite difficult for them to demonstrate that they'd moved through the various stages of the complaints. Um, they're trying to develop their sixth form at Merchants Academy and mm-hmm. they're because Bristol University are also involved um, in a tiny way with the merchants, uh, with the Venturers Trust, they they try to get their some of their sixth forms onto their scholarships program. So the this scholarship program is like it's picking kids out. It's this social mobility where you go, oh that child could do it, we'll pick them out, and that child can do it, we'll pick them out, rather than actually looking at the structures that mean you need the project in the first place yeah so nothing that's happened at merchants from what i can see they've been there for you know i mean what are they what are we now they've been there 12 years 
university entrance in the south of Bristol is just as bad as they've always been. The gaps are still, you know, they're not closing gaps between disadvantaged children and their peers. Um, you know, the, the, the entrenched kind of social issues um, and access to opportunities that generations of children that, grow, that have grown up in that area um, that so say this organisation was supposed to kind of change and uh, bring, it just hasn't, it hasn't materialised. Sure. Um, because what they're trying to do is make the existing structure better and actually, it's the existing structure is hierarchical by definition. And therefore, mm. they might get a few more children up into university, but it doesn't act, you know, once that project's over, what then? You know, yeah, it doesn't change the structural and systematic disadvantages that those children experience um, as they're growing up. So... I gather you've had a lot of dealings with some of the other schools in uh, the, the modern form of all this. So if we if we go through the timeline towards, um, you know, beyond the, the rejection of City Academy, you've got this now one multi-academy trust that encompasses all the schools directly run by the Society of Merchant Venturers. Um, how have you, in what dealings have you had with, well, with the with the Venturers Trust? How have you come to sort of uh, know about them in your life beyond as te- being a teacher in City Academy? So I've had numerous. Um, there's been numerous times when I've reported their schools for unlawful admissions practices. So I've done. Um, I've reported Colston Girls twice. Um, I've reported Merchants Academy once. But I've also been involved in Bristol Cathedral Choir School and the Cathedral Primary. So, and even though the Society of Merchant Venturers don't officially run the cathedral schools, the chair of the trust is a merchant venturer. And that person, Stephen Parsons, also sits on the cathedral chapter. So he's on the governing body of the cathedral itself. But so is a bloke called Anthony Brown, who was the chair of Colston Girls School and a member of the Venturers Trust. So it's literally the same people that are sitting on these governing bodies. So and I've investigated. So I've had those schools investigated as well. So uh, I've been looking at these admission arrangements for a long time because what I could see Um, because I left City Academy in 2010 and I worked at the City of Bristol College, so I was right on College Green. And what I saw was that basically they were serving the same kids as they always did at the Cathedral School. And that then led, and then and then they said, "Oh, we need to we we need to open a primary school, and we think we'll have your library to do it in." Thank you very much. So then I started to really examine, okay, well, what is going on in this school? And actually what's going on at uh, Colston Girls School? What are they, how are the, you know, what's changed with Colston Girls School then now that there is, and basically nothing's changed. So Colston Girls School, they ring fence 25% of the places each year for year sevens, specifically for children that live in authorities that are not Bristol. So you've actually got a better chance of getting a place at Colston Girls School if you live in South Gloucestershire than if you live in Bristol because there's fewer kids going for each place from outside of Bristol than there is inside of Bristol. 
I mean, this is extraordinary when you consider that the only reason this school now exists is because the state is shouldering the financial burden. And yet, instead of providing a comprehensive education, there are these shadowy practices happening every year that are allowing these schools to, to, to well, effectively cream off? Or, I mean, what, what, I mean what, what do they do with these 25% of places that are eligible for people who don't even live in Bristol? Who do they go to typically? Well, they're going to go. Well, they're going to go to families that a are in a position to be able to say, "Oh, yes, we can we can fund the transport for the next five years from Almondsbury or Yate or wherever into the central Bristol." That's the first thing that the family has to do because you're not going to get any support with the transport. These families would also have to know that if you live in Thornbury or if you live in Cleve or something, you can apply to. Colston Girls School for your child. Now, I'm going to suggest that if you're living on an estate in Bridgewater or Western, you don't know that you can apply to go to, to a school in Bristol and have a chance of getting your child in there. So, uh, you know, it, it's kind of it, it does beg the question as to who knows that you're in a posi- that they're in a position to apply. But mainly it's about funding the transport. Sure. Because we're talking the best part of a thousand pounds a year in order to transport your child to school every day and back, if that's how you're going to choose to do it. Um, and so therefore, that selection immediately in itself. And those families for whom English is not necessarily, it might not be their first language, that you know they might live outside of the city are they going to really know are those communities going to really know that they can send their 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 daughter to colston girls school i don't think so um and up until very recently colston girls and the cathedral um had these kind of comprehensive tests that you have to sit so if you wanted to go to the school you have to go and sit a test so they could band you because this was there that they claim to be comprehensive so that they, everybody sits a test and then they put you in the, the bands and then they pick even numbers out of these bands. So they so say get this cross section. But both of these schools also have 10 percent for their specialism and the, the specialism elements are literally the ones at the top. So it was always skewed regardless of how even the banding was once everybody had taken their test because 10% of the places were for these specialist um, kind of, well, for Colston girls, it was languages at the time. So it was for those that were by definition very high attaining in language acquisition and in language skills. Mm. And in the cathedral, it, it was music. Um, and, you know, if if you're from a family where you've got a piano in your living room or, you know, someone's got a guitar, then you're going to be better at music than the kid that hasn't got that as a, as a you know, as in their first 11 years of their life. So it's it is very skewed. Um, you have to understand their admission arrangements precisely in order to kind of negotiate or, you know, and see your pathway through as a parent in order to get your child in. And that immediately um, kind of excludes huge numbers of families from even having a chance because most of the time they'll just put it as their top preference and they've got no idea that it that well actually you've got to go and have a test or if you, your kid's really good with music you can go and have one of these specialist places um, the other thing that the cathedral's got are these chorister places 
places as well. Um, so on top of the music placements, they've also got 12 chorister places for kids that are, you know, they've been going since year four and they've been involved with the cathedral. So mm. these are these specialist reserve places. So there's lots of dodgy, what I consider to be dodgy practices that are just not how Bristol Brunel is run. Because Bristol Brunel, for example, or the Met or someone, it's like, well, if it's done on distance, that's how you get a place. It's like if you live in the, in the, that locality, then you then you get a place. Whereas Colston Girls School is you 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 can live in you can live out you could live in Gloucester and apply for one of their specialist places. And you and if you're at the top when you take the test, they'll offer you the place. And I, I don't think that's okay. I, I don't think it's okay for central Bristol schools to be turning away local children in favour of kids that live 20, 30 miles away. I can I completely agree with you. Um, so what has changed as a result of your activism around this issue when you've challenged them? Uh, I gather it's the Admissions Adjudication Board. Is that the formal? Yeah. So these banding tests, there were three up until very recently, there were three secondary schools in our area that did it. So Colston Girls did it. The Cathedral did it. And John Cabot did it out in Kingswood. Yeah. So I've challenged all three of those schools, two of them on two occasions. Those tests do not happen anymore because the schools were challenged by the adjudicator to demonstrate how they ensured that their intakes were comprehensive and they weren't able to do it. And I think that probably they just kind of went, you know what, let's just not use it anymore because it causes too many, it's causing too much aggro and we're being held accountable and we've got to justify what we're doing. And actually... It does. It's no matter. It seemed that no matter how they try to structure how they would allocate the places, they couldn't get to a point where they had a comprehensive intake, and that's what they're supposed to be. So, they, so those three schools have got rid of that. So I'm quite pleased about that because that wouldn't have happened. Well, the local authorities just nowhere. I mean, had those had I not reported those schools for investigation, they would still be using that that as one of the many barriers that they used to sort of. Um, filter their intakes into year seven so that's certainly happened um colston girls school um got very very upset with me or this particular person got very very upset with me when i reported them a couple of years ago um and i've t- i've um had some uh legal i just had to take advice from a lawyer and i had to involve a lawyer over some of the accusations that were made that were in writing during that process um, and I've got now got written apology for that with everything retracted because what happened was this person mixed up my activities around countering Colston with the stuff that I do around admission arrangements. What they didn't realise because it's just, I'm not important enough for them and they're too establishment to even bother to find out was actually I was doing the admission arrangements before countering Colston was anywhere near you know, I was interested in what they were doing way before anybody was going, What? why are you giving slave trader buns to children in our cathedral? <laughs> and that, you know, and that person didn't realise this. And that became really problematic for them because they considered this second challenge to be politically motivated. And then all of that, all of that stuff came in and it was just like, no, I'm just asking you whether you're following the, the, the admissions code and whether, whether your admission arrangements are lawful and they're not. And that's the problem. Sure. Um, so 
I mean, you've yeah. you've had some victories then. I mean, it's it's really impre- yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's really impressive what you've done. But I mean, it, what still what problems still remain to be addressed? You know, with, with, the, so the, way with Mer- the issue the issue I've got with Merchants Academy is every every child in Bristol has um, a kind of uh, lives within the catchment area of a secondary school, other than the kids that live in um, where Merchants would have been. So in 2015, Merchants Academy got rid of their catchment area entirely. So they no longer serve a partic- that particular part of Bristol. Now, that's the only part of Bristol where those ch- where those secondary age children do not have a catchment area school. So Merchants now, um, anyone that applies, they put their names in a hat and they pick them out. So what Merchants, I believe, are trying to do is they're trying to attract children from further afield including Baines and North Somerset because they're quite they're quite on the edge of Bristol. They're yeah. trying to change the intake within Merchants Academy. I mean, they've not been particularly successful because they're not very successful in terms of educational attainment. They've demonstrated themselves to not be very good at it. So actually, it hasn't particularly attracted people from outside of um, the, the sort of Bristol boundaries. But I've got a huge problem with that because you could because you can have a situation where those children living in what was Withywood's kind of catchment area don't have an allocated secondary school and every other kid in the city does and that's not equity and i you know i have real issues that the authority did not um, object to that massive issues about that bristol's got so much to answer for when it comes to particularly how the secondary school system in bristol works because they've just let these academies do whatever they want without challenge. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of institutional memory around how the, sec- how the system has developed under the academized system. And now they're almost too far down the line to get any of it back. Well, we're hoping to uh, draw some attention to this. And I think, you know, certainly uh, the unions and education campaigners like yourself have a vital role to play in actually interrogating this system, you know, both on the government side and in these private trusts. You know, often often you will notice there's a weird confluence, especially in terms of personnel. You know, it's it's possible for uh, people involved in making these decisions to have worked for the council and one of these trusts at various points in their lives. uh, And, you you know, we always critique the academy system, but when you private when you privatise public services, you lose the transparency. Decisions are taken behind closed doors in closed meetings. Aside from you know some skeleton accounts that get published on companies house the public has very little insight into for instance why the hell would merchants academy be the only school to get rid of its catchment area you know like where, where was the scrutiny on that where was the accountability it, it's it just very surprising that this this is happening so I mean, I just want to draw it back. I mean, you, you had a victory on in terms of getting rid of the entrance exams or you know, the banding tests, to use the correct vocabulary. Do you, are there still ongoing problems of, of you know, uh, selection you know, of, of student cohorts going into these schools? I take oh, it the absolutely. System, yeah, I mean, there are there are various, you know, within this, particularly within the secondary system, there are various ways in which the schools there's about seven or eight secondary schools in bristol that are using various elements of selection 
And so it's more than the sum of its parts in terms of the impact that it has on those children that aren't in a position to be selected as, as it were. So we've got, and I've always had, there's, you know, we've got the faith schools first, you know, so there's St Bede's in Lawrence Weston who take from South Gloucestershire and from all over a particular part of their diocese, uh, they've got something like 13% of their children entitled to free school meals. Oasis, what we would might call Portway years ago, or Oasis Brightstone now, is in the 40s free school meals because that school's taking the local, is serving the local children. So you've got the filtering over in that part of the city. Um, St Bernadette's down in South Bristol's not quite as bad, but there's still some filtering going on down there. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's the other Catholic school. St Mary Redcliffe is in Redcliffe, right? It has tiny numbers of children entitled to free school meals. And that's really problematic. And it serves the whole of the Diocese of Bristol because it's the only voluntary aided faith school. Um, and that's 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 a form of selection. Bristol Cathedral is also a Church of England school. That's how it can have the choristers. Right. And I found that out during one of these investigations because it doesn't add, it's not big in the fact that it's a Christian, it's a Church of England school. It's very big on saying anyone can apply and it's all faiths and blah, blah. But the way that they have these eight or 12 places, I think now, for these choristers is because they are considered faith places. I see. Um, plus, that school has music specialism tests. Plus, it takes from all over the city. So again, you've got this, if you can afford to get there and you live in Avonmouth, then that's fine. But sorry, if you live in Avonmouth and your parents ain't got the money, you, it's not even an option for you because you can't physically get there. So there's that kind of selection going on. We've, we've discussed Colston Girls quite a bit, actually, about how they filter mm. their intakes and how they, you know, is, is this anyone can apply? Everyone's got the same chance of getting getting in, and it's just like, well, that's not true, actually. <laughs> if if you can't get there, you you're not you can't. It's, it's not even an option for you. And this ring fence of these 25% of places, which is just needs to go because Bristol's got a massive shortage of secondary school places apart from anything else. Um, and then you've got the selection by cohort, which of course Redland Green practices. So every school, if they wanted to, admissions law allows schools to prioritise children on pupil premium, which, of course, includes free school meal children. No school in this city does it. Redland Green could prioritise children on free school meals if they so chose to do it. But they don't choose to do it because they don't want that. They don't want those children because they give this we're community school, we're serving the community. So there's that catchment by house price, if you like, going on in Redland Green. Yeah. The free school also does this. So the free school, Bristol Free School, is out in do you know the free school is out in Southmead. Yeah. Uh, but it serves BS9 children. So they're bus because they couldn't get a site for it. It was supposed to be at St Ursula's on the Downs. That didn't go through for whatever reason. So they got an old site down um, in Southmead. So, but the kids are bussed in literally from Henley's and bussed back out again on a daily basis because that's physically where the school is. So you've got to live in that Henley's Westbury on Trim area to get your kid into the free school, even though it's in South. So it's just so there's a so there's you know it's about is it between a third 
uh, you know, a third of secondary schools are practicing social selection in one form or another. And, yeah. you know, and that was, that's for me, that's really problematic. And yeah. those are also the schools that are held up as being these great schools with these great results. And the politicians locally are promoting them and the MPs locally are promoting these schools. And it's like you need to look at what these schools are doing and actually understand how they're operating and how it is that they're getting these they're, they're getting these results because they're filtering their intakes they're socially selective all of those schools are the thing that stands out for me just linking it back to our chat with roger is that these are the same conclusions that the endowed schools commission reached in the 1890s you know i we this has been happening for a long time and i, I guess this links to well, my final question I'm going to ask you, Christine, um, where do we go from here? What What is incumbent upon educators and campaigners to do about this? What would the solutions be? What What, what would be better than yeah, the current... Yeah, what would be better? Than, I mean, for me, one thing we do not... One road that we should not go down is trying to convince individual parents and families not to engage with the system i think that is a dead end and i and i do not hold it against any parent who genuinely wants to do the best for their children in terms of their schooling because kids only get one chance so i think that is a dead end we we have to focus on the institutional practice itself so we need to start calling these schools out for what they are um, and identifying what, how their practice is is selective um and start saying okay st mary redcliffe okay redland green why aren't you prioritizing kids on pupil premium you're allowed to do it and you're choosing not to do it why don't you redland green do that to the city average and then st mary redcliffe and every school does it to the city average and there is a much more even spread of those more disadvantaged children across the system it would encourage the system itself to work better together because i don't think you know the the system as particularly the secondary school system they don't particularly work together they're, no, they're, indiv- they're incentivized to compete you yes know. <laughs> and they want to maintain what they consider to be their own positions um so that for me that's a that would be a massive one if there was one thing that politicians and campaigners was were doing was asking was saying to schools why aren't you prioritizing pupil premium children don't talk to us about disadvantaged kids and closing gaps until you're doing that because your your intake is you structure your intake in such a way that doesn't close gaps because red and green four percent of your kids are entitled to free school meals and that's mm. not closing the gap. Closing the gap is when you take the city average. Cotton also needs to do this. You know, Cotton has yeah. got quite a low free school meal intake as well. There's numerous schools that have very, that have really quite small intakes of free school meal pupil, pupil children. And then there's the bridge down in South Bristol that's got, you know, getting up to 60% of their kids are entitled to free school meals. And for those, you know, that experience for those children um for them that's normal you know that that level of deprivation that level of poverty is that's that that's that's their normal experience of life and i think that that is 
really quite damaging for the children that are experiencing it, but also the kids that go to Redland Green that think that that is a normal experience of life, that living in Redland in a half a million pound house with four bedrooms and a garden during lockdown is the normal way that kids grow up in the city. And it, and they need to, you know, they, there needs to be much more mixing of children from different parts of the city and different classes in Bristol if we're ever going to have a better understanding of each other and more equity and access and, you know, access for children from more disadvantaged backgrounds to um, education that apparently is really good because they get really good grades. So let's see you demonstrate your really good education by having your, you know, the share of children that we know at group level are massively disadvantaged and need some really good interventions and some really bespoke packages for them to make progress. I mean, it's a sign of how far things have kind of become, well, I don't want to use the word deteriorated, but education governance in this country, uh, all we're asking for is that schools reflect the communities they serve in terms of their intake, you know, and that seems like a radical demand in this current cl- in this current environment. It's just extraordinary when you when, when you put it that way. So, uh, Christine, you have given us some amazing, you know, food for thought here. Uh, I'm going to invite you. I mean, is there anything else you wanted to talk about with us today or anything you think that we should be aware of or look, looking at next? Um, yeah, I mean maybe we don't do it now but certainly a podcast looking at how multi-academy trust governance is set up i think would be quite good yeah um just because um well i've i've made some notes here um about the do you remember this scandal at the president's club that came out a couple of years he was in the jet was in a um the dorchester hotel in london and the financial times journalist Basically, she she kind of went undercover to this charity event, high class, so say charity event, men only. Um, and it was this massive scandal. If you look it up, it's called the President's yeah. Club. Massive scandal because basically it was just a kind of, you know, hands up skirts and kind of selling women. And, you know, it was high class kind of titillation type charity event. But the bloke who is the chair of this charity is the founder of a multi-academy trust and at that and the thing is, and at that time i was because i've been i was interim of a chair of, i was the interim chair of a mat for a short yeah. period of time because i wanted to understand the governance behind this i really needed to yeah. get on the inside and go hang on a minute how's this working and the issue with that is that there isn't a mechanism for getting rid of that bloke no, uh, we found this in our experience as well through the union. The actual uh, powers of recall or of, uh, you know, impeachment simply don't exist. It's really, really, it's, it's just like, what? You can't, <laughs> the Department of Education can't get rid of this man. Only the other members within this MAC can get rid of this bloke. Yeah. What kind of governance setup is that? That is, and it's so it's really really dangerous as well. Yeah, it's, it's anti-democratic, and 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 when things when things get out of hand, as we have several, you know, we will focus on this in an episode because we've got receipts on some really um, dramatic sort of uh, well industrial disputes that then led to public campaigns where it, and at fault precisely was the nature of multi-academy trust governance, where like they they became unresponsive to the. the their own communities and their staff uh, and you almost had this uh, dictator who you could not topple you know so but it would definitely we will pick up on this thread because yeah 
it's good to know, as you say, how how the system functions as intended, you know, not how people think. Yeah, I mean, it was work. deliberately yeah. deliberately structured in such a way as to you can't get rid of these people because it's business law. And it's just like, hang on a minute. This is, you know, this is... State. It's a bloody school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, yeah. So, I mean, and I've got things like local democratic control, transparency and accountability. Yeah, those are, I mean, I think that would... But, but pretty much everything else we've covered, I would say. Fantastic. Well, I am going to, on behalf of my co-hosts who are not in this interview because they're all very busy at the moment, but um, honestly, huge thanks to you, Christine. We are really impressed by everything that you and the Countering Colston group do, and we wish you all of that for the future. Uh, hopefully, you know, if you get any good stories in the future, we'd love to have you on again, and Roger as well. So <laughs> um, I'm going to thank you for your time and invite you to say goodbye to our listeners. Okay, so thank you for listening and goodbye. Thank you for listening to Requires Improvement. You can contact us on Twitter via at RequiresPod and give us a share anywhere you can. We're available on all your favourite listening stations like Spotify, iTunes and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you real soon for our next episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>